encumbered our joints are by shoe wear, the less that we're going to rely on, on our ligaments. Had that, had that, had that. Achilles tendinopathy, <laughs> proximal hamstring. Oh, oh, there's another one. It's like I should shut up bingo at some point. Let's talk a little bit about how we get injured. You know, I was looking at some data on this, and I was surprised. The age-adjusted rate of sports or activity-related injuries is about 34 per thousand, which is three per hundred. It's pretty small. People worry an awful lot given, you know, if you thought about this as a disease, it's not a very common disease, this whole sports injury thing. A couple more stats that I thought were interesting. Almost half of all injuries were treated uh, outside of an emergency department and, and something like only 3% required hospitalization. So it's essentially, this is, I don't know, DIY injury stuff. I mean, as much as we talk about an awful lot of things becoming peer-centric, whether it's taxi drivers, it sounds like sports injuries, people think they can fix all of this themselves as well. Often we see two really distinct groups of people. We see those who wait and wait and wait because they assume it's going to get better. Um, and for sprains and strains, that might be fine, but these are sometimes people with grossly unstable knees and they keep falling down. And then we see those who are going to come to our office within an hour of a rather innocuous injury. Yeah. But with the presence of urgent care clinics now on every block, it, it, it's inevitable uh, that people are going to utilize those far more frequently. Does it surprise you that most injuries, activity-related, involve probably males, although I didn't pull that up, but it's between the ages of 5 to 24 years. That didn't surprise me very much. No, speaking, as a, speaking as a male who got injured a lot during that period. <laughs> yes, and I also find that inebriation is uh, <laughs> right. uh, a big causation issue for non-sports-related sports injuries. So ligament injuries, dislocations as a result of not really being in control of what you're doing. Yeah, which goes to one of the, the other stats I pulled out, which was that the highest percentage of injuries reported in this study, which was from 2016, was related to a fall. And there goes directly to the point you're making, that one of the groups most prone to falling are people who've overindulged, and clearly that leads to problems. Yes. Well, as two trail runners here, we fall frequently when we make a poor decision to try and pass someone on a 12-inch wide piece of terrain. You can't see it, but I have my hand up here. So. <laughs> Uh, guilty as charged. <laughs> but this whole idea of balance and proprioception and how important those are and how quickly we lose it. Because I think about growing up, we used to have this thing we did around the house. I grew up on a farm and we used to actually walk the log fence around the perimeter of the property. And it was quite a narrow, wobbly fence. But you'd, we did it without even blinking twice and would have a conversation with my brothers while I was doing it. If you put me back on that log fence today, disaster would strike. <laughs> it's a fascinating area for me. <clears throat> and anyone who follows my blog knows that this has been, become a distinct interest of mine as I'm starting to optimize and prioritize my own health, well-being, and desire to be an endurance runner and athlete for many more decades to come. So balance and strength are such critical issues. People they're catching their feet on rugs, they're tripping, they're, they stand up and they wobble a little and right. they don't think twice about it and they just think it's a normal age-related effect or maybe they don't even realize it. Uh, 
but this portends a big problem for them in the coming decades. Two other data points that struck me were one was that sprains and strains were the, the single biggest uh, type of injury that we saw. And, that and tied to that, it tended to be lower extremities that we saw see the most injuries. Is that any surprise at all there to you? No, not, none at all. Ankle sprains are extraordinarily common. Uh, foot sprains as well. Uh, knee injuries too. One caveat that I would, I'll just stick in here is it's amazing how people underestimate the severity of these injuries, uh, yeah. especially ankle sprains. Most consider it an innocuous injury and assume that they'll be back on a basketball court or out running uh, within a week or two, and it's simply not the case. Um, and a fair number of people will have chronic pain because of these simple sprains. Um, so uh, it pays to uh, seek out someone uh, for attention and for some direction and how to rehab these. Yeah, we alluded to it earlier. This, I had a pretty nasty ankle sprain from trying to stupidly pass someone on a narrow trail. <laughs> you know, it's still, it's like months later, and I still know what happened. It's, it's interesting how long these things take. But just on the, the topic of ankle sprains, what is it about the ankle that makes it, is it, other than just that we happen to stand on the things, is there something unique about the physiology, the geometry, an evolutionary explanation? Why are these particular joints so prone to these kinds of injuries? I wish I had a very sophisticated answer to that. I, I think there's a lot of reasons. Uh, one has to be shoe wear. Sort of don't subject our joints to uh, the proprioceptive challenges that they're used to. Proprioception is joint sense, joint position, um, without looking at your joint, knowing what position it's in. Um, and it enhances or increases stability. And the more encumbered our joints are by shoes wear, shoe, shoe wear, uh, high tops, etc., the less that we're going to rely on, on our ligaments, hmm. the less we need to rely on our balance, uh, the less proprioception that we possess, uh, perhaps the more injury prone that we are. We're also not training, right? We're not training in balance and proprioception. No, not. And we're using turf shoes on sticky, uh, fake turf. Uh, our feet are planting, cutting, and twisting, and there's no give uh, beneath. And that really helps set us up for a whole ho host of injury patterns. Yeah, it's really striking when you look at the data, how it centers on particular parts of the body, and I'm sure shoe wear is a big part of it. So having gone through the data a little bit, let's talk a little bit about why we get injured. And, I, and one of the questions I was just saying to you this before we started recording, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and he said, is it normal to feel like my knee folds a bit backwards now as I get older? And I thought it was interesting because I think a lot of people don't even know whether they're injured. Like, how do we know if we're injured? It's obvious if a leg breaks. But outside of that, I think a lot of people struggle to know, like, what even is, what's normal, especially as an aging athlete. Sure. Uh, you know, it backs up to the definition of an injury. Yeah. Most people over the age of 30, 35, they're not actually injured, at least 
60 or 70% of the people that I see in my office have no idea why they have pain. Mm -hmm. Now, when we dive deep into the etiology or the cause, we may find a training error or a running error, whatever it may be. But most woke up with the, with discomfort. They woke up with their knee swollen or they don't realize that their knee is buckling and giving out on them. And it really just crept up on them. Yeah. And it's too easy to say, this is just something that happens to people at my age. My knee starts to hurt. My, this happened to my parents. Their knee started to hurt. And, and people, I, I often feel like, just don't even know what they should expect from their body because they've not really, they're not really in tune with what it should be doing, right? Correct. They write it off or they're not even aware of it. We'll pick up on gait patterns in the office, uh, which clearly show that someone has a hip issue or a knee issue. And I'll ask about it. And they'll just say, oh, yeah, it aches a little. It bothers me a little. Like, you're, you're walking rather strange. <laughs> Let's look into this. Okay. And, and then right. we find something. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. But it really is. Gate, even gait retraining, which is a, a much broader topic. And, but it's, it's, it's such an interesting area because people have no sense at all of what it looks like. And if you show them, if they actually see on video how they're running or even how they're walking, people often just stand back and say, oh, my goodness, I had no idea. <laughs> my legs are shooting out to the sides. My arms are doing this and so on, right? It's really Yeah, I, I consider it a curse for, for me. I'll be walking with my kids in the city. We were up on the High Line last weekend, walking through Manhattan. And you can look at people and know what's wrong with them. You know, and it, yeah. it really is a, a curse. I, I can see what you know. You look at it and say, "Hey, I can see where this is going. This may not turn out very well." And I, I feel like I'm watching a movie and I know where it ends. So, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about types of injuries and just to give a taxonomy because these are words we're going to use a lot. But you know, it's broadly the difference between acute, chronic, and overuse injuries, and put them in context for us. Acute injuries are a slip, a fall, you twist your ankle, you roll your ankle, you have an ankle sprain. You're falling down, you grab onto the banister or another player, your shoulder gets yanked and it dislocates. Obviously, these are easy to put in context when contrasted to more chronic or overuse injuries. Uh, overuse injuries really fall under the chronic injury condition. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, from a classification perspective. And that's the vast majority of injuries that I see in at athletes, uh, especially in runners, right? Runners run too fast, too often. You know, slow cadence, fast cadence, altered gait patterns, um, weakness patterns. Uh, and so and these injuries oftentimes will creep up on, pe on, on people slowly and they won't even see them coming. Yeah. So in some academic practices where they treat a lot of football players and a lot of the teams, maybe they see uh, far more acute injuries than chronic. Um, uh, but for me, for a routine uh, outpatient practice, by far the majority of injuries that I'm seeing are chronic injuries. They're parts that are starting to wear out for various issues that we're going to get get into or our own training errors are getting us deep into trouble 
One of the ways that I try to think through it is that acute injuries, at least the low-grade acute injuries, tend to take care of themselves. So I, in a weird way, I don't need to think about it too much. It's a minor tweak and it's going to go away. I don't need to see anybody about that. Major acute problems, I broke something. I had a major sprain or something. These are things I need to see someone about because it may not take care of itself. And then chronic injuries are those weird ones where you can you can ignore it for a long time, but eventually it gets in the way of performance. It's kind of insidious in that way that you, you don't realize how much it's holding you back. Whereas acute ones, they seem to kind of split along severity. If it's really bad, well, then I obviously have to see someone right away. But if it's not so bad, well, that's a week off running. Absolutely. Uh, however, those of us who look past some what we would term mild acute injuries maybe find ourselves staring down a stress fracture of our femoral neck and our hip, right. which is devastating injury. So yeah, there really is an art to figuring out what injuries can I sit back on and ignore mm -hmm. and which of these little festering problems are, are about to become a calamity for us. That's a really good point. The other side of it, before we go on, is I often think about this idea of the worried well, right? A lot of people, when they feel something starts to hurt, their first thought is either I need to stop what I'm doing or maybe I need to go see a doctor right away. And, I, and it prevents them from actually being active because they're spending all of their time worrying about every ache and pain might be symptomatic of a stress fracture. It's not just a sore muscle, right? Yeah, a, a lot of that is built on prior experience. We've talked about the psychology of recovery, and I'm sure we'll dive into this deeper. But once you've been down the path and dealing with a chronic injury, perhaps brought on by ignoring uh, uh, what was initially a mild acute injury, you realize what happened from your, your poor decision making. Uh, sure. And you're going to deal with these future injuries differently. Some, sometimes a bit pathologically in terms of how much you worry about it. Yeah. So so let's take that the next step and talk about why we get injured and how people setting themselves up for injuries. You and I have talked a lot in the past about heart rate training and zone running and all these kinds of things about how to build a base and whether you're not, should I be paying attention to heart rate? Should I be, how, how do I, how do I make sure that I'm not setting myself up for problems, however obvious or insidious? Just maybe start off by thinking at a high level about things like, you know, things that predispose you to uh, activity-related injuries. What would be your top couple of things that predispose you to having something go awry? Yeah, um, I, I see a lot of injuries come New York City Marathon time, come January, late January, early February, because of all uh, everyone who's going to the gym now because of New Year's. Uh, promises to themselves um we those of us who are new to exercise new to running new to bike riding whatever the activity may be we're subjecting our body to load now mm. our tendons are wonderful uh, evolutionarily speaking they will absorb load they will release energy and absorb energy uh, however they're the size of our tendons the elasticity the thickness the stiffness of our tendons and the amount of load that they can handle is going to vary based upon the load that they have been subject to. Mm -hmm. So our tendons will respond to physical stress over time if given a chance to recover in between these periods of stress. They will handle certain loads, concentric loads or uh, 
better than others, uh, such as eccentric loads or negatives. Um, and we have to prepare our body for the task that we're going to ask it to perform. So as we alluded to, it's the runner who's, you know, you go out and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start running. My girlfriend runs, my boyfriend runs, my husband, <laughs> right. my wife runs. And your first run is three miles. And then you run the next day and the next day. And all of a sudden, everything hurts. We, we need to learn how to build this up slowly. Um, you alluded to these HRV programs. Um, I, I really was a big fan of heart rate variability programs for a long time, just in terms of monitoring myself. Because yeah, same, it is, same. Yeah, it's a very valuable tool um, for getting just an overall quick read of how your body is doing from a sleep perspective, from metabolism, uh, from the exercise you did the day before. So it's a short-term, it, it gives you a short-term look and a long-term look at your loading patterns and your body's response. Um, so for those of us who 30, 35 and beyond, we're picking up a new activity, we're going to the gym, we're getting running shoes, we just bought a new bike. It's just un understand that, that your body's gonna be there for you if you treat it properly and uh, allow it to build into these activities properly over time. Yeah, it became an opportunity to kind of gamify heart rate. <laughs> I can think to go faster, I need to maintain a, a heart rate of 168 on this particular uh, run or something else. I need to maintain a 175. And you, you start thinking about it in a very mechanistic way as an engine that I'm trying to run at a higher RPM for a desired outcome rather than a muscle that's doing work on your behalf and is undergoing stress as a result. And that stress has positive and negative consequences. And I think we've both come to the view that and about you know atrial fibrillation and heart related stress and the consequences of these things and how you you can't let yourself get run away with all of this instrumentation because it can lead to this gamified view of something that shouldn't be gamified absolutely i remember our conversations well when after we first started interacting with each other especially on strava I'm trying to race my heart rate down as low as I could go. And right. You're doing these peaks at a heart rate of 180. Yeah, um, right, right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very easy to do that. Uh, I, I agree. I'm very happy that I've become very satisfied with trying to get to the lowest heart rate possible at a certain pace. Right. Which is just anathema to this mechanistic model of, of the heart as motor and the idea that by tracking heart rate, I'm tracking the performance of the motor. It's easy to see how you fall into this trap and it has consequences. I mean, maybe not for everybody and not even for maybe the, even close to the, the a material fraction of people. But nevertheless, the data is pretty compelling that this is something you need to manage and not think about me mechanistically. True. For the people who are likely going to be listening to this, for those who interact with quite commonly online, um, <clears throat> they're going to fall into this crowd. Um, and there's going to be <laughs> probably far more who are trying to race themselves every day and improve themselves every day, uh, who are hitting those zone four, zone five heart, heart rates. Uh, three, four, five days a week. Um, they're not only setting themselves up for tendon overuse injuries, um, but as you alluded to, uh, for atrial fibrillation. And uh, that's just a path I do not want to go down for my heart.
No, no, not at all. Which is, which is, the, the body is a great and adaptive system, but it's a complex system, and it doesn't necessarily respond in the way you expect when it's subjected to these kinds of stresses. Especially if we don't pay attention to the other aspects of our body that are just as important: uh, our metabolism, right, um, our lipid levels, uh, our food, and our sleep patterns. We do two wonderful experiments every year. Um, we we flip the clocks ahead. Uh, one hour and heart rate, uh, heart attack rates go up by 25%, and then we drop it, uh, the, the clock back an hour, and heart, heart attack rates drop by 20 something percent. Um, our hearts don't like not sleeping well. Um, and then <laughs> we right. spend uh, a life eating this ultra processed food, and I go out with my running friends on Thursday nights, and we run for six miles, and they head off to a bar for a bunch of cheeseburgers, fries, and beers. <laughs> and look, people don't at me, don't send me anything when you hear this, but we are a product of what we eat. And we know that everything, it really is metabolism, stupid. It's, everything has a basis in metabolism. Yeah. Um, it's cholesterol affects our tendon integrity. Uric acid levels and gout crystals affect our tendon integrity. Tendon tears are more common in people with elevated lipid profiles, more common in people with gout. Um, it's really amazing how everything ties together um, and you can't outrun a bad diet. I, I have that conversation with people constantly. It's remarkable to me when you watch people who are material overweight and are out going for a run. And I mean, their heart's in the right place in the sense that they're trying to increase their fitness, but it's just a good example of someone trying to outrun a bad diet. They'd be better off to try and fix their diet, maybe go for a few walks, and but don't subject your body to that kind of pounding until you've you maybe taken off 20, 30, 50 pounds. Exactly. I mentioned that in context of these, these overachievers who are really trying to pound right. the heart rate up to the max every day. Yeah. They're stressing a system that's not necessarily optimized to adapt to that um, and they could find themselves in trouble one day. What do people have badly wrong about recovering from injuries? There's lots of things that people think they need to do, but what do they, what do they have right, what do they have wrong in terms of their, their own models of what it takes to come back? The people who uh, come in after two, three weeks after from an ankle strain or knee strain, something just starting to hurt, uh, there's just a very clear misunderstanding of the time that's necessary for recovery yeah. from these injuries. As you alluded to, your own a a ankle sprain three months out is still bothering you. Um, and this myth uh, of recovery, somehow the number six weeks has seeped through orthopedic <laughs> surgery. If yeah. you see an orthopedist, yeah. Yeah. you're getting a new x-ray in six weeks, you're seeing them back in six weeks, everything will be better in six weeks. It, it's amazing how common that is and pervasive. Yeah. But uh, even younger orthopedists, you'll s see someone with shoulder pain. Okay, we'll see you back in six weeks, we'll try some physical therapy, and if you're not better, then we'll consider surgery. Well, it's not going to get better in six weeks. It may take three or four months. Right. 
So there is a distinct lack of understanding brought forth by lack of education from us, your physicians, on what an anticipated recovery process is. If you're a runner and you have Achilles tendinopathy, plantar fasciitis, proximal hamstring tendinopathy, you're in for, it could be four, six, eight, nine months before you're feeling better. Uh, quite easily. I Something we need to touch on uh, are these injuries that you shouldn't wait on, right? So groin pain. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't want to hear about waiting on groin pain in any endurance at, athlete at, at all. I've, right. I've seen some horrible hip fracture cases over the years. Um, pain in the middle of a tibia, uh, in the middle of your shin, uh, due to, again, exertion and running. See an orthopedist, please. Uh, Pain in the metatarsal regions. Um, Those are are all stress fractures until proven otherwise. Yeah. And and it's such a good point because especially with groin pain, which is such a complex diagnosis, people feel like, oh, it's just something in my adductor. Who knows what's going on here? And they'll leave it and leave it and leave it. And it turns out it's a stress fracture, which leads to a break, which is just a disastrous consequence, right? Correct. Uh, another myth is this idea of loading it, and you alluded to this earlier that people too easily just say, "I've, I've, I'm something is, something's hurting. I need to stop using it until it stops hurting. I'm going to wait a day. Well, it's not better. I'm going to wait three days. Well, it's still not quite better. I still feel. It. I'm going to wait a week, and oh wait, I, it's it's still not gone, and now I feel something else. It's a really interesting problem. It is, and then they rest for three or four weeks, and it feels better, and then they go back to doing whatever they were doing and starts hurting again. Right. Um, right. Yeah, as we talked about, tendons, uh, evolutionarily speaking, were designed to accept load, um, absorb energy and transmit energy for locomotion. Uh, And so they don't necessarily like periods of rest. (laughs) Now, that doesn't mean that rest isn't... uh, isn't necessary for some injury patterns. And by all means, rest is a relative term. If you're running 50 miles a week, rest can be running 10 or 12. You know, if you're running 10 or 12, then rest might be walking. Um, and it's quite challenging. And even for many physical therapists, treating tendinopathy, which oh, is a major cause of, ten- of tendon pain, can be really tricky. We have different loading patterns for tendons. For tendons that are really hot, we like isometric types of strengthening or load. That's you pushing your Achilles again, leaning up against the wall and pushing um, back to load a tendon that's not changing in length. Concentric strengthening. Uh, It's like you doing a biceps curl. And then eccentric strengthening, that's putting a barbell, a dumbbell on your back, heading down in a squat. And it's the lowering uh, part um, where the muscle is actually lengthening. These all have a role in getting people through the recovery of an overused tendon injury. But there's no hard and fast rules as to which one you use when and who is going to respond to which one. Um, It may take three or four months to even start to see an improvement uh, in in these uh, 
tendon-related pains. It's quite a challenge. I had this dead wrong, and as you were talking, I was thinking, okay, had that, had that, had that, Achilles tendinopathy, <laughs> proximal hamstring. Oh, oh well, there's another one. It's like I should shut out bingo at some point. Uh, <laughs> with the hardest realization, and there's some researchers doing some fantastic work in this area, but the hardest realization was that I was actually handle, handling it completely wrong. I was handling it with you know, rest and, stretch, and stretching, which it perversely are probably the two worst things you could do as a, just a broad statement. Now, there's exceptions, obviously, all over the place, but stretching an, an aggravated uh, tendon is, is probably doing it nothing good. <laughs> it's just not a great idea. And similarly, resting it, as you've talked about, so lo loading it and trying not to aggravate it by mechanistically stretching it. But that always had seemed like what you were supposed to do. I've seen injured players on a soccer pitch who are stretching these things. Oh, I should stretch these things. I'm never going to argue with a professional medical team, uh, but stretching is very rarely the answer. Um, and for hot tendons, an isometric load is generally how you get out of those really hot days um, when the tendon is really bothering you. Yeah, yeah. And it's as it's people have the exactly wrong instincts. It's natural. a natural, it, but it is a natural instinct, right? Oh, yeah. It, yeah. I totally get it. Not everyone, you read more scientific journals than I do. Um, <laughs> you send me more orthopedic, or, 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 uh, you send me more orthopedic articles than I find on my own, you know. So it's fascinating. Oh, it feels like a rich area where an awful lot of things that used to be accepted wisdom are all being overturned or at least changing, and that always makes it fun, so... So speaking of fun, I thought I would try you out on a see if we can stump Howard case here. Are you ready? Hmm. Yes, I'm ready. Okay, so here's our case today. Uh, I'm going to be, I'm a 34-year-old uh, female gym owner, uh, dance teacher, who I've got shin splints, so stress syndrome on my tibias. And uh, I've been told I need to go out and do some running, so I picked up a pair of shoes and gone out and... I'm starting to run. I'm trying to exercise in a different way, which all sounds good so far. I'm not resting this injury. I'm trying to find a different way to load it. So maybe I should be doing weights, but that's what I've been doing. And now first day out on the new shoes, go for a short run, about seven minutes. I come back and I tell you that about three minutes after getting home, I noticed that my hands had become itchy and started turning red. And that seemed really strange to me. Is that common with new runners? Hand redness and itchiness. Uh-huh. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> so let's say that she goes back out, comes back, runs again. The next time she comes back, she tells you, I still had that itchiness and the redness. You know, this is running in moderate temperatures, so it doesn't seem temperature related. I'll give you that. Uh, but now she feels some pins and needles in her lips and maybe even thinks it's swelling in her face. What's going on? I stopped running again. This is really strange, this whole running business. You're killing me. <laughs> I need to buy a vowel or something. <laughs> I knew you'd love this one. So I'll, I'll take you the next step. She uh, goes out running one more time, comes back, all the same problems. Hands are itchy, turn red. She feels the pins and needles, maybe even some swelling in her face. Again, all after running, all coming back within minutes. She actually starts to develop uh, some breathing issues, having difficulty talking, and even and has a bit of a rash on her chest. Well, she's having an allergic reaction <laughs> to something. Yeah. 
So, yeah, she is. And so the, the story is, and this is from, I think, about 1975 in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was a case report. The first one I, I've ever seen on, ready for this, running shoe anaphylaxis. Oh, God. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? So the story is she, they don't know what it was. They don't know whether it was specifically something in the material or in the, the, the dye in the shoe, but she was having an anaphylactic reaction to her shoes. She had to be treated, in this case, 50 milligrams of an antihistamine intramuscular, and 30 minutes later she was fine, but she was actually having an anaphylactic reaction related to shoes. That's incredible. I'm swinging for the fences here. I'm going Why for not? the Why not? I'm game. It's okay. <laughs> Anyways, this is a unicorn. I'm not sure there's ever been another case of this, but I just found it interesting that I've, I have friends who have issues where they feel temperature-related stuff when they go running and they'll get rashes and redness and all these kinds of things. But the idea that it could be anything other than temperature-related was remarkable to me. That was a very interesting case. I, I will give you that one. <laughs> Thanks, Howard. Thank you. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. And we will not respond to requests for medical advice.